Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We're continuing our sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark. The passage that we're looking at is in your bulletin, chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. So let me read for us. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And then he went up on the mountain and called those to him whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your living word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, it can go forth to transform our hearts and lives. And so we pray that you'll send it forth now to accomplish your purpose. Um, Help us to have um, ears to hear, um, eyes to see, and hearts to really receive and rest in the good news of the gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if I threw out the question to you, what is the purpose of life, what would you say? What are you supposed to live for? If your kids ask you that, mom, dad, what is the purpose of life? What am I supposed to live for? What would you say? Do you actually have an answer ready and available? If you do, then maybe the follow-up to be considered later is, are you actually living in accordance with what you tell others they should be living for? As a culture, we are suffering from a crisis of meaninglessness. Deaths of despair are out of control. Depression, anxiety. It is too simplistic and just factually wrong, according to sociologists, to say that's because of smartphones and social media. They definitely do not help. But as a society, we really are struggling with a crisis of meaninglessness. In his book, The Second Mountain, David Brooks says this, And this is a long kind of rambling quote. I'm going to shrink down and just reference something specifically at the end. But this is in his chapter titled The Instagram Life. And he says, every culture has a means, a readily accessible means for passing on their moral values to their youth. He says, in our culture, one of the primary ways we do this is through college commencement speeches where graduates who have received an education are now ready to go out into the world and live and try to make something of themselves And the college or university will bring in 
you know, usually it's always some successful and well-known um, person. It's usually not some failure, right, and train wreck to come in and speak. They bring in someone who's super successful, usually wealthy, to say, okay, here you go. And he says, what we do is we use these speeches to pass along the dominant values of our age. But what we currently do is that we now hand over these speeches as if they are a great present. But these present end, end up being empty boxes of nothing over and over again. He says, the first thing that we'll do is we'll hand graduates an empty box of freedom and tell them the purpose of your life is to be free. It is freedom which leads to happiness. We would never impose anything on you or tell you what to do. You are liberated to do whatever you want. But the student sitting in the seat is drowning in freedom. What they need is direction. What good is freedom if I have no idea what to do with it? So then we say, oh, okay, well, here, here's the big gift of possibility. Your future is limitless. You can do whatever you want to do, right? We were told that when we were growing up, right? I would have loved to have played in the NBA or NFL or Major League Baseball, right? It's not from a lack of trying. The journey is the destination, but of course, this doesn't help either. If you don't know what life is for, how does it help to be told that your future is limitless? This only adds pressure. So then we say, oh, okay, well, here's the next present of authenticity. Just look inside yourself. Just find your own passion. You're amazing. Believe in yourself. Of course, this also is useless. For the you that we are telling them to consult is the very thing that hasn't yet been formed. So then finally, at this point, we hand them the most worthless box of all, the box of autonomy. You're your own. It's up to you to define your own value. No one else outside of you should ever be able to tell you what is right and wrong. And then he says this, you'll notice that all of our answers take the difficulties of living in your 20s and make them worse. These graduates are in limbo and we give them uncertainty. They want to know why they should do this opposed to that and we have nothing to say except figure it out based on no criteria outside of yourself. They are floundering in a formless desert. Not only do we not give them a compass, we take a bucket of sand and throw it all over their heads. <laughs> Our family loves going to the beach in the summer, but I hate sand. If someone dumped a bucket of sand on my head, I would be furious. But I bring this up because I think not only does David Brooks nail it with he's describing our current cultural moment in confusion, but also because this should never, ever be true for the children of God. God's word makes it clear that we are created to live for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. That is what we are designed to do, and that is the path to happiness and meaning in life. Our own shorter catechism, question number one, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of life? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In Ephesians 2, after Paul explains Hey, remember you were dead, now you're alive. God saved you by grace. This is a gift. It's by faith, not by works. You can't boast. He says in verse 10, you are God's workmanship. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You could substitute the word good works for ministry. Now I know, depending on your church background, the term ministry being in church and hearing you're supposed to do ministry may be very triggering, right? I don't assume to know um, how that, lo that word has been used in your past, maybe in a um, manipulative, um, pressure, duty-oriented sense. But I want to just strip it down and, and encourage you to consider that really what God is doing is inviting you to live 
in a way that aligns with how you were designed and created to live so that you can experience maximum joy and happiness in your life. The term ministry is what we translate, we translate for works of service, good works. And that's why I think that our passage today can really help us understand, well, what exactly does it look like to do this? It would be easy to read this text I just read and say that's, you know, kind of helpful, curious historical data about who the disciples were, whatever. Let's skip on to the next story. But I think in this passage, we actually see God's beautiful design, and it can really be a, a kind of a blueprint for us of how we're supposed to walk in the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. And so let's jump into this passage. Notice, coming out of last week, Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, who were the leading religious class, and they were the furthest far-right conservative group, they run out and grab the furthest far-left liberal group, and they both say, we got to murder Jesus. We can't have this guy around. And so then our passage picks up, and it says that, you know, Jesus heads out, and that these great crowds come to him. And it is overwhelming. Most commentators think this was the absolute height of his popularity. When it says that um, he went out and people came from all of these places, Tyre and Sidon were 100, 100 miles north of Jerusalem and Judea. So Jesus is going out. He's not just going into villages and people in the next house over are just walking over to listen to this dude preach. People are traveling hundreds of miles without cars and without trains. They are often without, you know, a mule or a donkey or a horse or anything. They're traveling to see Jesus. And it's not just Jews, it's Gentiles as well. It is overwhelming. His popularity is so big that it becomes dangerous. He literally says, we got to get a boat because I'm going to get crushed from these crowds. And then notice that here with his popularity exploding, demons begin to cry out, you are the son of God. And instead of doing what every kind of American church growth marketing manual says, which is you got to capitalize on your moment. This is the time to really elevate your brand. You got to capture everything you can on Instagram. You got to make sure you got all the scribes, photographers, and people there. Jesus silences the demons. He says, Be quiet. Why? Because they weren't ready yet to, to receive that news that the Messiah is here. They still, at this point in time, heard the words Messiah and interpreted it as Jewish nationalism. He's going to come in with armies, and we're going to now be a world power. And so Jesus was continually saying, be quiet, because he had to create a framework for them to understand the purpose of the Messiah is to seek and save the lost, to serve and ultimately lay his life down, not bring about your little mini plans for your own kingdom. So again, he does everything the opposite of what church growth experts would say. He silences the demons, and then it says he leaves. He goes away from the crowds. And it tells us that he goes away, and in a parallel passage in Luke, it says, in those days, Jesus went to the mountain to pray, and he spent the entire night in prayer with his father. And then in the morning, he called disciples to him, whom he chose from the 12, whom he then named apostles. Okay, what's the point of me emphasizing all of that? When you hear that we are created by God to do good works of service, to love and serve our neighbors for the glory of God, and then you read this context, you may step back and say, gosh, that feels like my life. I feel crowded in by needs on all sides. Therefore, what I often sinfully and wrongfully do is think, I got to work harder. I got to get more efficient. I got to drink more coffee. I got to wake up earlier. I got to check more boxes to get more things done to help more people or do X, Y, or Z. Jesus doesn't do any of that. 
Instead, first and foremost, he goes to be with his heavenly father. He tells us in John 5, truly, truly, I say to you, the son does nothing of his own accord. The son only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Translation, more than anything else, as we think about God reminding and inviting us to live a life of service for others, the pressure's off. The pressure's off. We can take a breath. It's not up to us to bring about the kingdom. It's not up to us to heal every disease and to set people free. We are invited to participate in the greatest mission the world has ever known, but the pressure is off. Oh, I really want us to hear that. I want us to hear it as a beautiful invitation. The thing that we need most as we think about this, how do I live well, is the thing that we need most first is to be with our Heavenly Father. I love the way, this is the quote on the front of your bulletin, Henry Nouwen, he wrote an article um, right before he died about this passage. And he said of himself, so often in ministry, I wanted to do it by myself. So again, think about so often in life when I wanted to help other people, I thought I had to do it myself. If that didn't work, I would go to others and say, please, I would try to find a community that could help me. And then if that didn't work, maybe I would start praying. And I think if we're honest, at least for me, that's true, sadly, most of the time. But he said the order that Jesus teaches in this passage is the opposite. It's the complete reverse. It begins by being with God in solitude. And then it creates fellowship, a community of people with whom the mission is being lived. And finally, this community goes out together to heal and to proclaim the good news. Jesus goes away from all the noise, the crowds, the pressure, first and foremost, to be with his heavenly father. Why? More than anything else, to be reminded that he was the beloved of God. To be reminded of what the father declared over him in his baptism. You're my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. That was the number one thing that Jesus would go back to consistently, to be reminded by his heavenly father. And the same is true of us. That is the thing that we need most out of the security of knowing our belovedness. Then and only then in that community do we move out into the world to love and serve others. Notice even how beautiful this story is in verses 13 through 15. Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him, notice this, those whom he desired. Gosh, if you're a highlighter, underliner, or whatever else, highlight, underline, star, mark, take that away. He went up on the mountain. He called to him those that he desired. And they came to him. He appointed 12. He named them apostles. Why? So that they might be with him. Not so that he could take a break and have a vacation. He didn't say, I need to hire more staff. This thing is getting overwhelming. It's grown faster than I expected. And I'm tired, I'm burned out, so I need you guys to handle it so I can get away for a little while. I'm turning off my email and my phone. Y'all deal with it. No, I desire to be with you. I want you to be with me. And I am going to send you out to preach good news, to preach about the staggering declaration that you are the beloved of God, not because of anything that you have done, to cast out demons, to heal those that are suffering those whom he desired. Kurt Thompson says this in his book, The Soul of Desire. I invite you to join me and to discover and acknowledge that you are a person of deep desire. 
You desire to be known in the deepest recesses of your story so that you will be liberated to become an outpost of new creation, of beauty, of goodness, even as you create that same beauty and goodness yourself, as you practice for the kingdom of God that is here and is surely coming. I love, I love that. Well, I, I think it's, it's hard, I know for me and for us, to even have a category that the King of kings, Lord of lords, the God of the universe who spoke creation into being, who knows every thought and intention of our hearts, says, I desire to be with you. John Stott, Anglican priest, said, if anyone actually knew what really went on in my heart, they would spit in my face. Listen to me. Jesus, our Savior, knows every thought and intention that takes place in your heart. He knows every text you've ever deleted because you don't want someone to see it, and he still desires to be with you and with me. I know it sounds too good to be true. I struggle to believe it myself. He wanted them, and he wants us to be with him. Not, I want you to sign up for seminary classes. Not, I want you to go get X, Y, or Z done. But I want you to be with me, each of you, individually, What's amazing in Ephesians 2, when it says that we are God's workmanship, the literal term there, I didn't know that until this week, is the, term, the Greek term poema from which we get the word poem. And what that literally means is that when it says we are God's workmanship created beforehand, what it's saying is each of us individually are God's work of art. Think about how valuable a work of art is, how intentional it is. It is beautiful it is an expression of the inner vision of the artist. That is what you and I are. Each of us individually, God has made and shaped and allowed us to have our stories, all of the blessings, all the failures, all the suffering, all the curses, the family dynamics, all of those things as a master artist, he's, he's been like brush strokes or like a hammer chiseling away to uniquely create and equip each of his people who he has chosen because he loves us to go out and love and minister in ways that no other individual in all of human history can minister. You have worth. You have value. When it says that, that he appointed these apostles, the literal term, it says it twice, is he created them. He didn't step back and say, the crowds are overwhelming. I need 12 guys to be on my board. Who are the most qualified guys? No. He called those guys to himself. He created them. And then, out of creating them as his beloved ones, does he send them out? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, everything that's happened to you, your life, your story, is like an artist with a hammer and a chisel, crafting and carving you uniquely for good works that God invites you to participate in. Isn't that amazing? You didn't choose your gender, nationality, parents, troubles. All those things are brushstrokes. They are as a hammer and chisel things that the great artist of history has been using uniquely in your life to make you who he wants you to be so that you can minister in ways that are unique to you. Gosh, if we believe that, we would be like an army that explodes in our city to love and serve and meet the needs of others. And then notice how intimate this setting is. The reason I threw out, hey, what was your nickname when you were growing up is because Jesus starts giving these guys nicknames in the story, right? Simon, he's like, your new name is going to be Peter, which means rock. Now, if you know the story of Peter, he was not remotely a rock at all at this point. 
he kept bragging, right, about how much better he was than the other disciples. And Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to deny me. And Peter's like, not me, right? And in a sense, he's like, I'm a rock. I'm a rock. And then, of course, he did publicly deny Jesus three times. But before his story was over and said and done, he was a rock. And Jesus spoke that over him. And then James and John, he calls them sons of thunder. And it's been funny this week, like commentators are all over the place on why exactly did he call them that? Later in Luke 9, when they visit a Samaritan village and they don't want to receive Jesus' message, those guys are just quickly to say, hey, you want us to call down thunder and fire on this city, like just straight judgment. Let's just blow them up, right? And so like, well, was that a reference to that? Was it a joke? Was he like pointing out how rash? And we don't know, but we do know is that nicknames uh, make you feel special, right? They make you feel a part of something. F3, which is the faith, fitness, what I don't know, faith, Faith, fitness, what's the other one? Fellowship. Yeah, that's a big one. Right? That's what they do, right? If you go to an F3 workout, right, at a school or whatever, the first time you go, they give you a nickname. Now, of course, that nickname isn't really based on them knowing you, but it is unbelievable how much that makes guys feel a part of something. And we're created for community. And so Jesus is naming these guys, and he's forming this unique, special community, this intimate and, and Tripp crushed it when he preached on the calling of Matthew a couple weeks ago. Lest we forget, the apostles were not a group of guys that would have been friends anyway apart from Jesus. A lot of these guys would have been enemies, right? Simon the Zealot would have never, ever been friends with Matthew the tax collector. But Jesus is like, hey, a part of what I'm doing is I'm taking natural enemies and making them supernatural community out of your understanding that your main identity isn't your political party, it's not your job, it's none of those things. Your identity is you are the beloved of God, you belong to me. This is what forms that unique and special community. That of course it's messy, it's not perfect. Judas Iscariot who betrays him is in that community. But I do often ask myself sometimes, like in our community groups or in other you know, groups that enjoy each other at Hope, if we remove Jesus, would we still all be friends? Like that's not, again, it's not like a bad thing necessarily, but is there a noticeable difference that the only reason we're friends is because of Jesus and the fact that we belong to him? Or is it something else altogether? You know, my nickname growing up that my dad loved and gave me and that I hated was poot, as in someone just pooted. <laughs> that, that's actually what, and it's not because our family ate a heavy diet of beans. My older brother, Scott, about a year and a half older than me, when he was learning the talk, at least the story I received, is my mom would call me Matsy Poo when I was whatever rolling around on the ground like Bo, I guess. And um, my older brother, Scott, would try to say that, Matsy Poo, Matsy Poo. My dad thought it was funny. I guess thought it sounded like poot. Well, it stuck, not just as a little kid who can't walk. I have so many memories playing sports, being in the huddle in football and hearing my dad say, you know, lower your shoulder, poot, run it hard. And basketball, take it to the basket, poot. In baseball, throw strikes, poot. And of course, all my teammates thought that was hilarious, right? And they clowned on me, and I hated it. I mean, hundreds of times. Dad, please stop calling me that. Mom, talk to Dad. Please, please have him stop calling me poot. I can tell you this. After my dad died when I was in the eighth grade, I would have given almost anything in high school and college and even now to have him be here and call me poot. Like, he didn't just call some random person on the other team that we were playing poot. That was a name he gave to me. It was special. It, it was unique. 
Like Jesus values and loves and cherishes each of us individually. He calls us by name. He makes us his beloved. And the more we live out of that identity as a community, then we are equipped to go out and to love and minister to the world. And that's why I even changed the, the, the order in a sense of what Henry Nouwen said. And I, I changed it to intimacy, community, and then ministry, mission, whatever you want to think about. But that order is so, so important. I'm not anti-solitude. I think solitude's great. I live in a house with, you know, five women and a girl dog. Like, I, I like solitude. Taylor Swift's blaring all the time. Last night, we were at, our family was at a, you know, CMS, Queen City, um, middle school cheerleading championship. And I was praying for solitude and silence. <laughs> I felt like I was back at a Mullins High School pep rally. They had DJ in the corner. They had an MC from a local radio station getting it crunk. People were dancing in the stands. And it was so loud that I kept having to put my hands in my ears because it was hurting when they were announcing different teams. And I loved it. I mean, it was eight different schools from all over the city. Our, our family was overwhelmingly in the minority, and I loved it. I, I found myself even, you know, just sitting there thinking, I'm so thankful I'm here. I'm thankful my daughter's out there cheering. I'm thankful my girls are getting to see it. It's another reason why I love public school so much and the interaction and the diversity. And, and then, in a sense, one of the highlights of the night was my daughter Lucy's Carmel Middle School team won the championship, which was great, and it was awesome, and they did great. But the highlight of the entire night was this middle school from Davidson whose head cheerleader was a little girl with special needs in a wheelchair. And where we were sitting in the stands, every team came out of like that back corner and the DJ would play their get hype music and they would be strutting out and kind of whatever, this is about to get hype. But then you notice something's differently, immediate, different immediately with Davidson because the music's different and, and they're not doing that. They're just walking and they're pushing this girl out front as the head cheerleader. And so everybody immediately kind of is like, oh, people kind of stop dancing in the crowd. And they're like, what's the story with this? And you don't know. You don't know. Is this just like, you know, the child of the coach or whatever? Are they just going to like stick her over on the side? Well, no, she was front and center for every single set. And she cheered louder than any girl in the gym the entire night. And she was off. She wasn't in sync half the time, but she was so happy. And her teammates were not ashamed of her. They would come around her and they would do different, you know, cheers with her every single set. And it was unbelievable. You, you couldn't capture or contain the joy that this girl had throughout their set. And the loudest cheering from the entire stands of the whole night was for that girl. And their team didn't win. And I, afterwards we were on the floor and Lucy's team's cheering and taking pictures, and it's great. And I could see most of the girls on that team from Davidson, you know, just sad. They lost. That's fine. And um, this little girl was beaming. She couldn't stop beaming, holding her pom-poms. And I remember I walked over to her, and I said, you did great. And before she could even respond and smile, her dad looked up. He was tying her shoes, and he said, yes, she did. She did awesome. And him saying that as her father over her was almost more special than the joy on her face. But, of course, they go together. That she didn't just enjoy cheering and enjoy being a part of the team, but she really, truly, in her heart of hearts, delighted in the fact that her father was proud of her. 
that her father didn't see her as a failure. He didn't see her for what she can't do, but for who she was. Now, I don't know her story. I don't know what's going to go on the rest of her life, but I would bet every single bit of money I have that she, for the rest of her life, is going to be a major proponent of cheerleading. What has happened to her life and her story, being a part of that group, being a part of that team, being a part of that community and doing that with them, she's going to go out, in essence, as an evangelist for the gospel of cheerleading and being a part of something like that. To the degree that our lives are changed by knowing that we are the beloved of God, it'll shape a community that believes that as well, that is excited and eager to go out and share that good news with others. Listen to what Isaiah, the Lord says in Isaiah. The Lord who created you and who formed you says, Fear not, for I have called you by name. I have redeemed you, you are mine, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Now, lest you say, oh, that's just, you know, a pep talk that God had to give the Israelites because they kept screwing up and couldn't get it done. We know for a fact that isn't flattery. Because we on this side of the cross and the resurrection know what it cost for him to redeem us. It cost everything. It cost the life of the Son of God who willingly went to the cross so that he could redeem his people. As Isaac Watts reflected on that good news, here's what he had to say. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you will help us to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Thank you that you created, you formed us, but you also redeem us. You know us by name. Lord Jesus is our good shepherd, is our wonderful counselor. You know how easy it is with our mouth to say all the things about the gospel that you desire us, that you see us, that you want to be with us, but how hard it is, how monumentally hard it is to believe that in our hearts, to stand securely in the grace we've received. And so I pray that even now as we respond in worship, you'll use it by your spirit to deepen our understanding of your goodness towards us. Thank you that you love us. Help us to believe it so that we go out and joyfully tell others. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.